I feel very passionately that the way many of us work in these high pressure industries, you know, we have an invitation to work as hard as we can and we take it because we're good girls and we want to do well and we're excited and enthusiastic and driven. But if we're not careful, we risk our health. Welcome back to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. My guest today is award-winning journalist and writer, Jennifer Nadel. Jennifer is the former editor of ITV's Home Affairs, where she was one of the UK's most senior television correspondents. She's also the co-author of We, a manifesto for women everywhere, a book she wrote with longtime friend and actress, Gillian Anderson. I hope you enjoy our conversation about the principles that can help you live a more fulfilling life. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's so nice to speak with you today. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on, Sam. So Jennifer, you've had a great career as a lawyer and a journalist. And as a journalist, you were in millions of homes at ITV in the UK and really bringing them so many important stories I would love to talk to you about some of those stories that you covered. What were the most important ones in your mind and what drew you to the kinds of things that you were covering? I've had a burning sense of injustice since I was a kid. And so one of the things that has motivated me throughout my career has been trying to right what I perceive as wrongs. So some of my stories covered issues like domestic violence, the law discriminating against women who had been the victims of domestic violence. And one of those reports was made into a book and then into a movie, Miscarriages of Justice, People Wrongly Locked Up. And then the war in Bosnia, the use of rape systematically used there. And for the first time, we were able to prove that it was being used as a weapon of war, not just as a byproduct of war, but that it was a deliberate part of the policy. And that report was then used by war crimes investigators. And it is now against international law to use rape as a weapon of war. I mean, that is such unbelievable impact that your work has had to be used in the UN to fight war crimes, to spur society to think differently about domestic violence. How does that feel to really have such an impact by telling these stories? It feels like the hugest privilege when you care deeply about something to be given the opportunity to do something about it. Privilege is the only word I can think of. You know, I woke up every day feeling so motivated, feeling so driven because I was lucky enough to be in a position where I had a camera and a microphone and access to a nightly audience of up to 10 million viewers. And I knew that I could talk about things that weren't right and I could hopefully nudge things in the right direction. So I feel very fortunate to have had that opportunity, particularly as a woman, because when I began my broadcasting career, there was still a lot of discrimination against women. There weren't equal numbers of women. Those women that were employed were told that they had to speak with a much deeper voice so they didn't sound shrill or any of the other words that have been used to minimise and dismiss female broadcasters. And in fact, one of my first roles that I got at the BBC, they decided my voice wasn't deep enough. But luckily, in a couple of months' time, I got exactly the same job for ITV, where they were much more open-minded and progressive and allowed me to have my own voice, which is which is female. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we now know that. But in the dark days of the 90s, that wasn't always accepted. Wow. Well, I'm glad they were much more enlightened over there and that you did get to tell these stories So I imagine you worked really hard in this job. As you said, you really loved it. You brought passion to this role. 
but it also led to really extreme burnout, which you've been very public about. Can you tell us about that? You know, what led up to this and what changes you had to make as a result of that experience? I was so passionate about my work and I loved it so much that really everything else fell away. And at the end, there was just me and my work. And I didn't think there was a problem with that because it held so much meaning for me and so much purpose. But in fact, I had driven myself far beyond the point at which humans can function. I was working crazily long hours. I wasn't eating. I was living and breathing my work. If you asked me how I was, I would tell you how my work was. I wouldn't be able to tell you how I was. I can't remember the last time I'd read a novel or gone for a walk or done any of those other things that people do with a balanced life. And and one day I just woke up and couldn't go on and it came from nowhere. I can remember the weekend before thinking I'm the luckiest woman in the world. I have two kids. I have this amazing job. And then one morning I just woke up and thought, I can't go on. I rang the office and I said, I'm really sorry. I can't come in today. And in fact, I never went back. That is really unbelievable that you just woke up and something in your mind, your body just said enough, can't do it now. When the day or the week before you felt fine, that is a really sudden feeling. How did you deal with that? Well, I now see it as an awakening, but it was so visceral and so real. It was as if going to work would be like plunging myself into a fire. My body just said, I can't do it anymore. And then all the consequences of that overdrive I'd been in caught up with me. You know, I got a very bad depression. I became physically unwell. I became mentally unwell. And I had to spend a large number of years, you know, nearly 10 years in the wilderness, rebuilding myself. So I went from this person who was broadcasting nightly to 10 million people to being someone who was signed off work indefinitely, largely agoraphobic, raising my two kids as best I can, but not able to function in any way. And in fact, I was told that I would never work again, that my burnout was so severe that I pushed myself so hard that I would never be allowed back into the workplace again. And I really had to use that period to make peace with myself and to make peace with my life. I had to be able to accept it. And yeah, it was 10 years in the wilderness and a lot of soul seeking and my health returned. And I'm profoundly grateful for that. And it's now part of a large part of my mission is to try and prevent other women going to the extreme that I went to, to really notice the symptoms as they arise, not just to override them because we can override them, but to really be in right relationship to our body. It's not enough to have the intellect and the drive. We also have to acknowledge the fact that we are human beings in a human body that has limitations. And I feel very passionately that the way many of us work in these high pressure industries, not dissimilar to, to yours, is, you know, we have an invitation to work as hard as we can and we take it because we're good girls and we want to do well and we're excited and enthusiastic and driven. But if we're not careful, we risk our health and that's no good for our employers and it's certainly no good for us. You know, you mentioned working in these high pressured industries. And I think as women, many of us feel like, first of all, we have to work that way because that's the nature of the business. But second of all, you have to work even harder because you have to overcompensate the bias that's out there and really try to establish yourself as a woman in sometimes male-dominated industries. So it sort of doubly works against you. So I'm curious for you, as you were going through you know, that 10-year period, what helped you the most? Were there resources or tools or people that you turned to for help? 
I turned a lot to different spiritual practices. And what I really longed for was that I would find one path and that would be the answer. I went to every conceivable church, every conceivable teacher, tradition, hoping that I would find this one perfect place where I wouldn't need to do any work anymore and I could just hand myself over and become part of that belief structure or that tradition or that religion. And that wasn't my experience. What I did was I just took the best from every different teacher that I was fortunate enough to encounter. You know, I listened a lot to speakers like Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra, and everything that was out there. I just consumed it all because my life depended on it. But what I discovered was that I had to find my own way. And I now look back and think we're so incredibly lucky. We live at a time when all these teachings are available to us. It's almost like we're given a banquet of different spiritual wisdoms and practices. And we can go to that banquet and find the one that really suits our taste. And what I did was I began to construct this way of being which brought my health back and which also gave me a new sense of meaning and purpose that wasn't contingent on what was happening at work or indeed having a job I loved. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to write a book about that experience, which was just such a gift to be able to do, because through that book, I've been able to talk to many other women who are seeking, you know, most of them didn't reach anything like the depths of despair that I did, or that my co-author, the actress Gillian Anderson reached. But we have been able to talk to you know tens of thousands of women who perhaps are just wondering is this it is this what I'm here for okay I've done everything I thought I was meant to do I've got the right CV I've got the right job got kids maybe I've got husband maybe and yet I'm still not feeling it like this is what my life is really about and so it was a blessing to be able to write that book and I continue to speak to women and coach and train and work with amazing women who are on that journey the journey that I was on and will remain on until the day that I die. Well Jennifer I'm so glad you were able to do this kind of work again tell these kinds of stories again and go out there and really reach people all over again in a new way. The book that you're referring to is called We, A Manifesto for Women Everywhere. And it has some really amazing and important principles in it where you really talk about leading a happier life through these principles. And those principles are honesty, acceptance, courage, trust, humility, peace, love, joy, and kindness. So there's a lot in there. And I'm sure we could talk about every one of those in great depth, but I would love to really start with honesty. And what I was struck by with this principle in the book is that you talk about honesty with yourself. It's not about being honest with other people. It's about really being true to who you are. Can you talk about that as being you know, such a foundational principle for people? Absolutely. I mean, truth matters to all of us. None of us like to be lied to and none of us think of ourselves as liars. And yet there is one person that we are often deceiving continually, and that's ourselves. We tell ourselves that things are okay when they're not okay. We say yes when we mean no. We say I can handle this when actually we can't. We say I'm fine when actually we feel like weeping. And until we come into right relationship with ourselves and have an honest and authentic relationship with ourselves, it just means that we need to know what we really think about situations, what we 
feel about situations. We may not alter what we do about them, but if we're not able to have that clarity and that honesty with ourselves, it will be very difficult to go out into the world and find a real connection because we'll always be connecting as an approximation of ourselves or who we think we are, not who we truly are. You talk a lot also about humility, and I've read that humility was one of the tougher principles for you personally. Tell us about that. Why was that? Well, I like to think that I know the answers to everything. (laughs) I like to think I know when people are right and people are wrong, which is the opposite of humility. I have lived a lot of my life in my ego and I really had to learn to deconstruct that ego. I mean, my ego had a terrible blow when I was no longer able to work. You know, my ego liked to be visible. It liked to look smart. It liked to look clever. It appeared as if it was generous and expansive, but actually it was really just looking after me and trying to make me feel safe. And it's very difficult to have an authentic connection with yourself or with your world if you are coming from a place of ego, because the ego involves all sorts of defense rackets which stop you connecting and which can make you quite an unpleasant person. And humility is really the opposite of the ego. It's what happens when we come to the world from a position of peace, when we own our vulnerability. It's okay if we don't know. It's okay if we're not the best. It's okay to be exactly who we are. And so, yeah, humility was a real journey for me. And I still look out for the ego arising. And I now understand its workings a lot better. I know that if I'm frightened, my ego is likely to ride into battle. I now work a lot with politicians who, of course, rely on their egos a lot. And when one is in one's ego, one doesn't want to make compromises. One doesn't want to give ground. One thinks one knows it all and it's all or nothing. You know, it's a form of fight or flight response to the world, really. So understanding that what is ego and what is our true, humble, genuine self that lies underneath it, that the ego ego thinks it's protecting but is actually causing all sorts of problems for then that's really helpful as you go through life and you negotiate situations with big and difficult personalities. I think that is fascinating and as you're talking about this I'm thinking about how related it is to honesty to the first principle we discussed that you really have to deal with your real inner sense you know have that humility to bring out the truth to be honest about with yourself and also it seems very related to another principle of acceptance And I think acceptance can be very hard for people. I think it's hard for me, you know, when I think about the things I have to accept about myself or really others, that one is probably something I struggle more with. How do you see the interconnectedness of these principles? Was that an important part of why you chose some of them to write about? They're all utterly interconnected. And in fact, when Julian and I sat down to write this work, we kind of put everything we'd learned from all these amazing teachers and all this amazing searching and research and, and, you know, experiential work that we'd done and thought what connects them and what really connected it were these spiritual truths, which can be found in every religion. None of this is original. All of this has been known for centuries, but it's got buried. It's got buried in, you know, our new commercial world where we think that goals and numbers and outcomes 
are more important than the workings of the soul. And so, yes, they're all deeply interconnected. They're to do with being authentic and they're to do with really wanting to live the best life one can and relieve oneself of the bondage of self. You know, most religions have at their core the golden rule, which says, I will treat others as I would like to be treated myself, or to put it another way, I'll try to do no harm to others. And in order to get to that place where one can really have any sort of a chance of doing that for any part of the day, we need to become aware of the rackets that we engage in, the distortions and not deliberate dishonesties, but just ways we have become blind to what's really going on inside of ourselves. So we have to dismantle, if you like, the faulty systems that many of us have carried since childhood, which tell us to attack or to defend or to grab or to guard or not to share or to threaten. We have to dismantle them and then rebuild ourselves from the inside in a way that really puts peace, understanding, compassion, kindness at the heart of our being. And when we do that, there's this incredible sense of freedom that flows because that is actually what all of our true natures is. If you think of a kid, their strong sense of right and wrong, what isn't and isn't okay, they know what's fair. You know, you just have to spend time with a young person to know what's right and what's wrong. They see through all of that. So we need to reconnect with that authentic nature which is there in all of us, which we've buried beneath all these defence mechanisms intellectualizations, overly kind of educated brains that forget about the rest of our being, forget that we're metaphysical as well as cerebral. We have to get into right relation with our true authentic selves and then all this energy is released because we're no longer battling to hold down the many-headed hydra within us. We're joined up and connected and one. When I hear you talking about the principles in this way, it almost feels like permission permission to let go of things that aren't true to your nature and really dig deep and find out what is important to you. So I think anyone of any spiritual background, as you mentioned, you can really find a lot in your words and your writings. Now you wrote this book before the pandemic, but of course, now that we've lived this for more than a year in such challenging ways, I think some of this work is more important than ever. So I'm wondering, do you find deeper meaning in this and are you finding others are really picking up on these in a different way? Absolutely, that the book has had a resurgence and people are coming forward to try and do the work that we outline in the book. I think the pandemic created an existential crisis for many of us. We were forced to stop doing the things we do that numb us out or prevent us from really examining our lives. We came close to death. Some of us sadly encountered death and grief and all the heartbreak that goes with that. But all of us were with a sense of our vulnerability as humans that, you know, we don't live forever we have a certain or an uncertain number of days on this planet and what are we going to do with them? So I think the pandemic did open up that existential space for us all to start thinking about what we want to do with this one precious life that we've been given, how we want to live it, what really matters. You know, many of us discovered, or I certainly discovered that, you know, a lot of the things I did during the week, I didn't miss them. I didn't miss all the rushing around. I didn't miss going into town to look in shop windows. What I really valued was connection with people that were authentic and genuine and open. Often they were family members. They could be strangers, but it was about an authentic connection. Like we don't need to pretend anymore. There isn't enough time to waste any of our precious lives 
on pretending. Let's just get real and let's connect in a real way. And I found so much more meaning in that. And also nature, you know, so many of us during the pandemic have found a new relationship with nature, have found a need and an urge to connect with it, which I think is profoundly important. It's not only spiritual and good for our mental health it's also good for the planet as we hurtle towards runaway climate change we're all beginning to appreciate this earth even more than we did before and that too is going to have a really positive knock-on effect i hope I do too. And I really couldn't agree more with getting back to the side of nature that I think really resonates with us. So you speak about these principles with individuals, but you also work with companies and organizations on the teachings. How do you think about this when when it comes to an organization? Do you teach anything differently when it comes to an organization or can all the principles apply the same way? I think that each of us as humans are perfect microcosms for large organizations like companies or businesses and indeed countries. So the principles remain the same. They're the same principles, but how do we use them to function as an organization? How do we use them to release that incredible energy that happens when all of us are allowed to be our authentic selves? How much more effective is a workforce that is allowed to be who they really are, who is connecting with their real meaning, who is connecting with their real purpose? And when a company knows what its purpose is, to have everyone in alignment with that is an incredibly powerful thing. It makes everyone happier, everyone feel freer, and everyone feel better about what they're doing. And the results are undeniable. So for me, it's a win-win whenever I get to work with an organization because I know that only good will come as a result of the work that we do on an individual level and on a structural level. Jennifer, you're obviously very driven by compassion as you're the co-founder of Compassion in Politics and would love to hear what that organization does, you know, what its mission is and how you think compassion can be an answer to bringing people together in politics. So we founded Compassion in Politics because we realized that there was a common cause to all the single issue concerns that upset so many of us, whether it's homelessness, whether it's lack of adequate housing, whether it's refugees, whether it's climate change, all of these things have one common cause, which is the absence of compassion. So we started Compassion in Politics in the belief and in the knowledge that if we could promote compassion, we could achieve shifts across a whole range of social justice and societal issues. So we started just over two years ago in the UK. We now have a nascent group in the States. We have groups in Argentina, Chile, Spain, Denmark, Australia. And so it's an idea that's spreading it and it's an idea that's of its time, which is simply if you promote compassionate, if you promote compassionate measures, you will deal with all the issues that are upsetting us in one stroke. And Further, you will enable politicians from opposite sides of the political spectrum to come together because we're not asking people to leave their party or be disloyal to their tribe. We're asking them to come together because they both believe in compassion. And that value, certainly in the UK, has brought politicians together from opposite sides of the political spectrum, talking about issues, discovering common ground, and then moving forward to provide solutions in a way that has been very unusual in this country. Yeah, the discourse, I think, in politics, certainly um, for us here, 
has been, you know, so loud and so strident that you forget we can find common ground on many things. And I hope that compassion does provide that lens to seeing where we are the same, that we really want uh, people to live better lives. Absolutely. And dealing with the manner in which we conduct politics is also really important. Just as you mentioned, the level of our political discourse has got so bad. And how on earth are we going to arrive at compassionate solutions, which make sure that everyone is taken care of, if we're shouting, if we're insulting each other. So one of the things that we've done in the UK is we've started to look at new codes of conduct. We've started looking at voluntary codes that politicians can sign up to, to say that they're not going to launch personal attacks, that they're going to discuss the issue, but not the personality. And when politicians have gone into election campaigns with that that code that we've helped them develop, they report back that the whole campaign is a lot less toxic. People are talking about ideas. They're not insulting each other. You know, if, if one side just stops returning the insult, the other side eventually has to stop too. So there's a lot of change that we can create in the way that we conduct politics as well as in the substance itself if we prioritise compassionate methods and compassionate means. Well, I'm very glad you're taking that around the world. It sounds like such a universal approach. So we look forward to seeing more there. I'd love to ask you about self-care since you write about that. And really for you personally, I'd love to know how do you practice self-care now, just given all you've learned and all you've gone through, you know, what are the things that really work for you? Well, the first thing I would say is that I practice it imperfectly. Perfection is a real issue for many of us women, thinking that if we don't do it perfectly, we're failing in some ways. But I have things that I do every day to try and take care of my mind, my body, and my soul. So I start the day each morning with a spiritual reading and some meditation just to remind myself that it's not all about me, take myself out of the picture. I try and do something with my body every day to show that it's cherished. I do the basics, the really boring basics, the same things that we who are mothers do with our kids. I eat three meals a day. I don't skip meals. And the reason I don't skip meals is I can lose my temper or my emotional balance so much easier. You know, we're still humans. We may not be toddlers and throw ourselves on the pavement, but if we haven't eaten, then we're much more likely to react or to feel wounded by things. So I make sure that I've exercise, that I eat regularly, that I prioritize sleep, and that I allow time for the spiritual to come into my life. And those things I find meet my daily needs. And then I'm much better able to function in the world. And I'm much happier as a person. And it's so easy to overlook them. And it can feel indulgent, or it can feel basic or not sophisticated enough. But they make the biggest difference whenever I'm working with someone once we've got those basics in place, we can move to a whole nother level of operating. But without those basics, we really hamper our ability to thrive and to flourish. And what advice would you give to someone who thinks that they just don't have time to practice self-care? You know, I love that you talk about things that seem very doable in terms of we know how to do these things. They don't necessarily cost you a lot of money, but people might feel like they just don't have time to do that. How would you counsel people to find the time to do these things for themselves? Well, first of all, they take very little time. You can give yourself positive affirmations, for example, while you're brushing your teeth. You can get out of the subway one stop early and get your 20-minute walk-in. You know, how many of us 
us turn our phones on first thing when we wake up and just check our notifications or check the headlines. Start with just two minutes meditation a day. Just acknowledge that we are spiritual beings on a human journey before we get stuck into the day. When we preserve that clear water that we wake up with in the morning before all those negative thoughts come in, anxieties and to-do lists, if we can somehow preserve the clarity, that beautiful still water, first thing in the morning, we are set up for the rest of the day. It really just puts everything in perspective. I love that saying of, of, you know, when you're trying to change the course of a huge, great ocean liner, you only need to move the wheel millimetres to create a huge change in direction. So we're not talking about more things to add to the to-do list, making women feel even busier and more like they're failing if they don't do it. We're talking about things that one can wrap into one's daily without it taking huge amounts of time, but with it producing huge benefits. I really love that. And it just feels so purposeful. So bring that to the table too. So Jennifer, what makes you feel hopeful these days? What gives you joy and what do you hope people you know, take away from so much of what you've written about? What makes me really hopeful is that I know change is possible. And I know that all of us are essentially good. All of us have compassion innately within us. It's just that we lose our way. And all of us can return to compassion. And one of the things that's come up, particularly in the UK during the crisis, is how much strangers care for each other. You know, the level of support that has emerged, you know, the vast majority of people on both sides of the Atlantic and across the world care so much more than we ever give them credit for. You know, we are a caring species, but we have been educated out of it and it has been systematically undervalued politically and economically. And once we start reaccording the right value to caring as a quality and as an activity, things are really going to change. Thank you so much for being with us today. It is such a pleasure to talk with you. I feel hopeful just talking to you. And I know that so many of your principles will be really important to our listeners. So thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you, Sam. Thanks for joining my conversation with Jennifer Nadel. I loved hearing about her work, both as a journalist and an author. I'll be thinking about the principles in her book and how I can incorporate more acceptance and humility in my own life. I hope this episode and her message inspire you to do the same. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For J.P. Morgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.